RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Allie Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 9, Post-Kelly Ripperology and Conclusions. Ten Weeks in Whitechapel. Conclusions. An interest in serial killers is often viewed by widespread society as odd and macabre. I speak from first-hand experience here. In 2001, I was working for an English-language teaching magazine based near the University of London. I enjoyed the job, particularly as its location could be reached by bus or bike rather than the tube. I'd cycle a few times a week, but if I was going out after work or had to wear a suit, which was pleasingly rare, I would take the 38 bus. One day I was nestled next to the bus window reading Howard Sooness's book about the Fred West murders. After a few stops, a woman of, shall we say, generous carriage jumped on and decided that the seat next to me was the one for her. I looked up, offered her a weak smile, and this being London, received a frown by the way of reply. Oh well. Now I'll admit here that my own carriage is far from svelte. I'm something of a wide gentleman. I'm the son of a docker, who was himself the son of a docker, and am thus broad-shouldered by genetic determination. Therefore, this woman was doomed to an uncomfortable journey once she decided that her buttocks should reside next to mine. I shuffled a little, pushed myself into the window, and tried not to grunt when she arrived inches from my lap. Oh, excuse me, she said, as she grinded into me. I pulled my knees together and tried to find some way of freeing fresh ground, as she pushed further. As expected, none was forthcoming. My actions were bootless, as I had no territory to cede, but I carried on in the interest of basic manners. This did not satisfy her, so I tried other ways. My shoulders came next, narrowing to accommodate her enormous specimens. She began to tut and snort. Sorry, there isn't much room, I replied, nodding at the, shall we say, elephant in the room. We continued with this pantomime for several minutes, with no satisfactory outcome. I wonder why she just didn't give in, but then I saw it. I saw her agenda. Her plan was to shame me, simply shame me, into relinquishing the window seat and force me into taking the one on the outside. I was steadfastly against this policy. I stood, or rather sat, firm. My resolve is true. No way, sister. Back to the book. She gave up. My inner elbows were touching now, and the book was centimetres from my face, but I continued reading nonetheless. I had no room at all, really. I have a vague recollection of attempting to use my nose and cheek to turn the page, but I couldn't swear to it. She continued to shoot me aggressive glances, but there was no dice. Then she saw her chance to change tactics. It was a beauty. I've got to give her that. She inhaled loudly while holding her cavernous mouth open and hissing, hissing very loudly, I might add. Oh my God. I'll admit that I panicked a bit. Had I nudged her breasts? Touched her buttocks? Difficult not to, as they were almost on my hips at that point. 
What fresh horror was this? Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Slowly people began to turn around and see what the fuss was about. She was clever. Oh, she was smart. She didn't voice a direct accusation until the whole lower deck of the 38 of Victoria were paying attention. Most of them were agog with curiosity. So was I, for that matter. How can anyone read books like that? Revolting. Ah, that was it. I was reading a book about a serial killer, and that somehow made me equally culpable as West himself. I shrugged and went back to it with an, oh, sod-off, shake of the head. You'll have to do better than that, love. Pleasingly, the rest of the bus went back to their business too, reading papers or listening to music. We manoeuvred through the streets of Islington, and I smirked the smirk of the victorious. I gave her a last look. Her face was almost purple, as she was still playing the shame game. I had won, although I was still doing an impression of a battery farm hand at the time. I smirked again. All politeness had long since evaporated. Disgusting! I decided not to engage further. I went back to the book, but instead of reading, I thought about her strategy. Surely this must be a common occurrence for her. Did she always look for big lads with questionable reading material every day? I released a little giggle at this thought. Oh my god. What now? I was getting pissed off with this. You think that funny? No, no. I was laughing at something else, my eye said. I wasn't. Oh shit. Did you think I was... But no one else was playing now, despite her whirling round for comrades and occasionally elbowing me in the ribs. There were no takers. I was still a bit panicked. What sort of person would laugh at a book like this? I was only laughing at... Then something bad happened. Something really, really bad. I realised that someone reading a serial killer book for comic purposes was in itself, and forgive me for this, darkly comical. That made me laugh. I'm not proud of that, but it made me laugh. Then I remembered that this was the wrong time and occasion to express mirth. I laughed again. And again. You think that funny? Disgusting. Don't do it, Carl. I threw my head back and cackled. Christ, what had I done? She gasped again. I could barely breathe. I did all I could to save myself, but I was struggling. Your mind can be cruel at times. You can tell it what to do all you like, but sometimes it just prefers to be the naughty schoolboy. My shoulders began to shake, but my eyes were concentrating on the written word. It made it worse. The woman was now apoplectic. Laughing at people dying. I roared at that. Absolutely roared. I put my finger on the line so I wouldn't lose my place when I recovered from the shudders of laughter. It was the worst thing I could have done. It looked like I was saving a salacious death for later reading. The gasps were back too. No, you must stop, I begged, as a fresh wave of laughter submerged me. I was talking to her, but it looked like I was addressing the book. Again, that exacerbated the situation. But sensing she had lost, she stood up, called me a pig, and went to seek a smaller shouldered man elsewhere. I wiped the tears from my eyes and regained my composure. I gave that story to Mike, one of the characters in my novel, and what do you do? As it sounds better in fiction than fact. The old adage of the difference between the two is that the latter has to make sense. That story, however, is perfectly true. During those days, my office was next door to a large branch of Waterstones, the booksellers, who have recently dropped the necessary punctuation mark from their name, a decision which irks me to this day, I must admit. A few years earlier, my friend Gabrielle worked in the very same shop and told me that the staff would often play a game called Spot the True Crimer. 
This would consist of her friends assessing an incoming customer and guessing if they were the sort of people who would walk straight to the true crime section and seek new books about grisly deaths or gangland hierarchies. She claimed that she never missed. I had a shaved head at the time, so I was an obvious candidate. However, I denied my membership to that club. I have no wish to collect handguns or door pentacles on a wall. My interest in the subject is scientific rather than bloodthirsty. From what I can recall about the West book, it was mostly about how the media portrayed the case and the knock-on effects once the discoveries had been made. Yes, I know something about the murders, but not in an appreciative way. I can also speak with some authority about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. But it's the police ineptitude and diabolical actions of the hoaxer which are more interesting than the man himself. Sutcliffe was a fairly dull individual who just got lucky. West was a simpleton who had a ready helpmeet and an evil wife, and was also incredibly lucky. Who would want to know about them, apart from the criminal psychologists? No, it's the ephemera around them which holds my attention. And that's been the most rewarding element of the Ten Weeks in Whitechapel series. My plan was to simply write a kind of Ripper 101 overview and nothing more. I'm not saying anything new about the case, merely putting the basics out there in the hope that others might become as fascinated in it as I am. It's worked too. I'm answering questions now on a daily basis, and I've used this column as a launching pad to seek some far-off ephemera of my own. My interest in the Whitechapel murders is from a social history perspective rather than criminology, but if yours is not, then that's fine. Maybe you'll have your own curiosities and want to know more about Tumpleti, say, or the Maybrick brothers, or maybe it's the short lives of the victims and their decline which you find fascinating. All of this is just a warning, really. People may find you to be a bit weird, particularly if they want your seat on a bus. But let's get back to the case, and as I've examined those ten weeks in detail, see what happened since the murderer put away his knife and left Miller's court. To this day, the Ripper murders form the greatest whodunit in the history of crime. Only the Kennedy assassination comes close, and anyone with the rudimentary knowledge will have a favourite suspect. I speak from experience. When I first began researching the murders, I went from Tumpleti to Kosminski to William Berry, and although it wasn't much fun for the poor women involved, it's easy to spend an hour promoting and debunking theories with like-minded friends. Such conversations have taken place since the years of the murders itself, and modern sleuths have made numerous attempts to unmask the killer once and for all, be it through theory or evidence. This latter strategy is difficult at best, as the surviving papers or any other evidence is scant, as much as being lost or stolen or taken as a keepsake over the last century. The Dear Boss letter survives to this day, but that too was lost for decades. The From Hell letter has also disappeared, along with various case notes, some of which may have been vital. But that's not to say that discoveries don't pop up from time to time. The little child letter which heralded the arrival of Francis Tumblety as a potential suspect only came to light in 1987, while the Mary Kelly bed photo only appeared in the police journal in 1969, and then again in Dan Farson's book Jack the Ripper in 1972. Maybe, just maybe, there's an Abilene diary out there somewhere or an irrefutable confession scrawled in a book. 
After all, secret collectors of Ripperology do exist, and occasionally, just occasionally, things are returned to the National Archives or the Black Museum at Scotland Yard. You just never know. But following the Miller's Court atrocity, and the apparent disappearance of the culprit, the police had no idea what to do next. That's unless you believe Anderson and Swanson, who claimed to have the man locked up. Gradually, the case was wound down, and the public were happy at least that the killing had stopped, though the lack of an arrest and conviction was frustrating. There was little the police could do, given that this was the age before fingerprinting, DNA, or even the preservation of crime scenes. The police phased down their investigation, and Abilene was taken off the case in early 1889, to work on, amongst other things, the Cleveland Street scandal, when the police raided an alleged male brothel, which may or may not, depending on who you believe, have been attended by the very cream of aristocratic society. Shortly afterwards, on the 26th of January 1889, James Monroe told the Home Office that he would be reducing the number of bobbies on the beat. As quickly as it is safe to do so, the case was as good as over. There may have been no more murders, but the vapours of those ten grim weeks still haunted the public. The political groups considered that, if the police had not arrested anyone, it must follow that they knew who was responsible and were covering it up. And if that was the case, the Whitechapel fiend must have been someone very, very high up indeed. Numerous arrests were made, but no one was charged. As the years rolled by, the key players in the case began to die off. In 1896, Dr George Baxter Phillips, the police surgeon who had attended four of the five autopsies, as well as three of the crime scenes, died while Leather Apron, John Pizer, succumbed to gastroenteritis in 1897. Three years later, P.C. Thompson, who nearly caught Francis Cole's murderer, was killed in a barroom brawl. Dr Thomas Bond, who examined the Kelly body, committed suicide by jumping out of a window. As these people died, so did any hope of discovering who did it. There was one benefit of the case going cold, however. Now that they had retired, several senior officials talked more openly about their time on the case than ever before, in autobiographies and memoirs. Sir Robert Anderson brought out The Lighter Side of My Official Life in 1910, while McNaughton published The Days of My Years four years later. Abilene left nothing behind when he retired as Chief Inspector in February 1992, which was a great shame, as no one in the force knew the East End as well as he did. Soon, East End mothers, who were once frightened of the murderer, began to threaten their children with him. If you don't go to bed, Jack the Ripper will get you. The killer became less of a threat and more of a character, a ghoul, a miasma. This was Gentleman Jack, with his pantomime villainy bedecked with a top hat, bagging gloves. As Bruce Robinson said in his recent book, Jack the Ripper did not look like Jack the Ripper. This character grew to such an extent that he soon became fictionalised as the tale was told time and again in new and exciting ways in media. The first Ripper-related film was released in 1926 in the shape of Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog, based roughly on the story of the Batty Street Lodger, though written Ripper fiction began much earlier. John Francis Brewer wrote The Curse Upon Mitre Square as early as October 1888, merely weeks after the Catherine Eddowes murder. The art world also began to take an interest. Ripper suspect Walter Sickett painted Jack the Ripper's Bedroom in 1907 and The Camden Town Murder or What Shall We Do for the Rent a year later. The dawn of modern Ripperology probably began with the journalist Daniel Farson's TV programme Farson's Guide to the British in November 1959. Farson was something of a trailblazer in terms of modern televisual presentation, 
and chose a much more hard-hitting approach to documentaries rather than the clipped, rather polite, traditional BBC approach. He chose challenging subjects such as mixed marriages and nudism, and was not afraid to interview anyone from, to my mind, loathsome right-wing extremists such as James Wentworth Day, who thought homosexuals and, by extension, his host should be hanged, to local vicars in his quest to show a different type of Britain. It was Farson to whom Lady Christabel Aberconway, the daughter of Sir Melville McNaughton, showed what may have been an early draft of her father's now famous memorandum, in which he named the three suspects. Lady Aberconway was careful that no one be liable in the programme, so Montague Druitt's name was abbreviated to MJD, and it was only in Tom Cullen's book, Autumn of Terror, in 1965, that Druitt's name was revealed in full. For the first time, television had produced fresh interest in the case, and, for a while, the Whitechapel murders were in vogue once more. The most famous Ripper film of the 1960s was not fictitious at all, but a strange, quirky documentary called The London Nobody Knows, in which the actor James Mason walks around the capital, looking at peculiar people and practices. Near the end of the film, he visits 29 Hanbury Street, knocks on the door, and asks a rather bemused resident if he can take a look around. He stands in the yard, pointing at the murder site with his walking stick, and tells us that this is where Jack did his work, though he fails to name Annie Jamman. There then follows a trip around the area, including footage of drunks fighting in Brick Lane, a tramp looking for scraps in a deserted Spitalfields market, and some hopeless inebriates in Nitchie Park, the grounds of Christchurch near the Tambells pub. It's the best footage we have of that area before the house was torn down in the early 1970s to make way for the Truman Brewery. The film is available on DVD, and trust me on this, it's really, really odd. I absolutely love it. 1970s Ripperology was dominated with the Royal Conspiracy, thanks to the Barlow and Watt programme and Stephen Knight's book. It was also a great time for Ripper fiction. There had already been a rather misogynistic episode of Star Trek in 1967, entitled Wolf in the Fold, which bore some Victorian Whitechapel hallmarks. But in 1979, the tale was also adapted for the big screen, with Murder by Decree starring Christopher Plummer and, yes, him again, James Mason as Holmes and Watson as they attempted to catch the murderer. The area itself, with some of the Victorian streets and buildings still relatively unchanged, began to cash in on the case. In 1976, the Ten Bells pub, where Kelly and Chapman may well have drank on the night of their murders, took the extraordinary decision to change its name to Jack the Ripper. Even before taking into account the historical nature of its name, it's been there since the 1750s and it's thus one of London's oldest pubs, naming it after the Slayer of Women was tawdry to say the least, and as with many things Ripper-related, the murderer appears to be celebrated for his deeds by way of recognition. Fortunately, Following a campaign by the group who claimed the night, amongst others, the brewery saw sense in 1988 and changed it back. Incidentally, the celebrity chef, Jamie Oliver, claims that his great-great-grandfather was the landlord of the pub in the 1880s. If true, he may well have served the killer. Today, the East End seems rather coy about his infamous residence, as there seems to be little to point out what happened there. The White Hart pub, where George Chapman once worked in the basement, has a plaque outside in its entrance in Gunthorpe Street. There currently sits also a mock Gulson Street graffito a few yards up the road. There is also a window of Ripper artefacts, the copies of the From Hell letter, for example, pictures of the suspects, opposite the pub, but that seems to be the only mention of the murders in the area. The murder sites themselves are fairly nondescript. 
A few years ago, somebody placed small plaques around the sites, claiming them to be Mary Ann Nichols Row, etc., though none exist today. The only thing similar is a stencil graffito on Enrique Street, about 100 yards from Elizabeth Stride's murder site. In fact, access to the majority of the sites is restricted these days. Bucks Row, Stroke, Derwood Street is now a construction site, with Polly Nichols' site frustratingly out of reach on the other side of a fence. 29 Hanbury Street is now a private car park, which doubles as a market at the weekend. The houses have long been demolished, so it's difficult to earmark the exact spot. The murder location of Liz Stride at what was once 40 Burner Street is now a schoolyard, so photography is pretty much impossible at times, for obvious reasons. Mitre Square is undergoing a major development, though it currently remains the only site where you can actually stand on the exact position on any given day, though please don't do that. That said, it's not certain just how long it will be there, as there are plans to build a public realm enhancement, whatever one of those is. I suspect it will do little to help ripperologists and walking tours. Mitre Square was once full of ripper tours, I counted six one night, but now it's more or less empty as it becomes smaller and smaller. Nevertheless, you can still visit the spot where Joseph Lavendus or Catherine Eddowes talked to a man in what was once Church Passage, though that too is being encroached on by roadworks. As for Miller's Court, Dorset Street, just forget it. Seriously, don't bother. It's now in the middle of a building site somewhere opposite Christchurch Spitalfields. It was once a service road to the north of where Wright's Row Car Park was, which is a 1970s eyesore, before that too was demolished. In any case, the entire area is walled off while construction work goes ahead. There's better news in Goulston Street. The place where the apron and graffito were discovered in remains, though the stairs have gone. It now forms the doorway of the Happy Days chip shop. The owners have even been good enough to put up a photo of roughly where the words were scrawled. Happy Days have a restaurant area to the left of the takeaway chip shop, which has several pictures of suspects and people of note on the walls. And it's not often you get to sit and eat fish and chips under the watchful gaze of Sir Charles Warren. The owners don't mind you taking photos, and there's also a well-written primer about the murders on their website. Some people may see that as rather exploitative, but I'd rather spend time in a place called Happy Days than a pub called Jack the Ripper. There is a local barber's nearby called Jack the Clipper, but that's as close as the East End comes to mentioning the Whitechapel murderer, save for the numerous ripper tours which scurry around Spitalfields and Aldgate East at night. Some think that the area should do more to show its dark history and even preserve some of the sites. But there's little coin to be made from pointing out where a famous murder took place. In any case, the number of ripper tourists have never declined, so you have to admire the area's restraint into not turning it into some sort of Disney world for serial killers. So why has this series of murders lasted so long in the public conscience? After all, there are far grislier slayings and serial killers with a higher murder count than five, both before and since the case. Peter Sutcliffe killed at least 30 women and attacked many more. Furthermore, he had a similar desire to mutilate women, but to my knowledge, there are no Yorkshire Ripper You could argue that it's because Jack was never caught, but there are still mysteries in other cases... There's still a missing body in the case of the Moors murders, but will that be remembered in 130 years, even though child murder is more hideous than any other crime? I doubt it. Any view is valid, of course, but I suspect it's because we have so little to go on. 
This man walked around the busiest neighbourhood of the busiest city in the world, viciously killing women on the streets, with others nearby, to such an extent that on two occasions he slayed his prey outside buildings where a twitching curtain would have done for him, and no one saw a thing. In Mitre Square, he killed and disemboweled Caffronettos in between the beats of two policemen and still walked away. The audacity of the murders, the silence and the vanishing acts, make him appear almost superhuman. He was actually anything but. He was simply an incredibly lucky man. He wasn't a genius or a criminal mastermind or protected or anything similar. He should have been caught, but the times were in his favour. Had it been today... Annie Chapman, Liz Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Kelly may well have survived. So who was he? Do we have any idea at all? During the Yorkshire Ripper murders, one of the investigation rooms had a blackboard with two sentences written upon it, divided by a vertical line. One side said, What we think we know about the Ripper, with a list of bullet points underneath. The other, What we actually know. There was nothing underneath those words. This is not strictly true at the Whitechapel case. Despite an absence of evidence, there are things we do know about him. Firstly, he was local, or at least dressed as one, and if witnesses can be believed, ignoring Matthew Packer and George Hutchinson, he was foreign or Jewish. That last statement isn't based on any casual racism, as is customary in 1888, but on Mrs Long's testimony, as she certainly saw Annie Chapman with the wanted man. The broad-shouldered man who attacked Liz Stride in Burner Street used an anti-Semitic remark to Israel Schwartz, or Pipeman, so we could suppose he wasn't Jewish, but far from a certainty that Stride's killer was actually the Ripper. What else do we know about him? Well, he knew the East End. As stated earlier, he ran from Mitre Square and disappeared into thin air. He walked away from Mary Kelly's room and into one of the most densely populated streets in London and no one saw a thing. This suggests a bolt hole nearby, somewhere where he could lock a door and be at one with his trophies. The night of the double event was the only occasion where we roughly know where he was heading following a crime. He moved towards Goulson Street, a stone's throw from the rookeries of Dorset Street, Thrall Street and Flower and Dean Street once he'd finished with Catherine Eddowes. He didn't jump into a carriage and jet off to the Inner Temple or the more salubrious domiciles of the West End. He walked into the East End and it's not unreasonable to presume that's because he lived there. We also know his killing ground. He didn't like to travel. It's possible to walk from the most westerly murder, Mitre Square, to Book's Row in the east in about 20 minutes. In terms of tube stations, Oldgate East, next to the Martha Tabram and the Spitalfields murders, is one stop away from Whitechapel, while Oldgate, the station closest to Mitre Square, is only a three-minute walk to Oldgate East. In fact, I've just used an online map and plotted the direct course from Books Road to Mitre Square, passing down Whitechapel High Street, Oldgate High Street and Mitre Street. It came up with 0.92 of a mile. It's unlikely that someone would travel any great distance to murder on four different nights, when there's hardly a paucity of prostitutes in other areas. No, the killer was local. So, male, foreign and local. That narrows the field down to about 60,000 people many of whom used assumed names. We don't particularly progress, do we? He may have had some rudimentary atomical knowledge, though no one is certain on this point. He did know the method of cutting a throat while avoiding bloodstains. He cut from left to right, probably by standing behind the victim, 
Nichols had thumb marks on her face where he'd held her steady to afford a grip. By strangling his victims until they lay on the floor before severing the left carotid artery, he could also avoid the blood. Had it been a straightforward slash, he would have been covered in the stuff. He knew that, and this suggests that, at the very least, he knew a little of butchery. He may well have worked in a profession where bloodstains were not uncommon, and could walk around the streets of E1 without attracting suspicion. Male, foreign, local, knew about butchery. Okay, we can't arrest anyone yet, but those are a few facts about him. It's just a shame it's not enough. We'll never know who did it. Ever. But sometimes, that's the best part. (laughs) 